Hello and welcome everyone to episode 251 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and this week we're talking about The Royal Hotel, the sophomore feature from writer-director Kitty Green. With me to discuss that, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? I am good, Scott. Uh, well, we both just watched the Atlanta Braves have a dramatic win. Uh, it feels like we're sliding into fall was going to be my overall point. Yeah, I'm uh, wearing flannel. Yeah, I wore flannel I, this weekend at the festival. Yep, I was wearing a long sleeve shirt earlier and some jeans to um, do my laundry uh, because I have to go to the laundry room. I wasn't mm-hmm. doing laundry in my apartment. Like <laughs> just just I'm to clear the. Normally, the you don't wear clothes doing laundry, but in the fall, you'll wear clothes doing laundry. Yes, yeah, of course, it. yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, I uh, yeah, no, I was at, actually my girlfriend and I went to the fair yesterday um, in Winston Salem near where she lives, and uh, it, so we were outdoors, and it was it was cool. It was like in the yeah. low sixties high 50s and we rode the ferris wheel and we got to the top and it was very cool up there (laughs) did you guys Um, have a moment like in uh is it what's the coriata film last year Um, oh yeah um uh why can't i think of it i can't think of it either Um, yeah yeah yeah. but yeah yeah, no we all know what we're talking about it wasn't quite that deeply emotional (laughs) Okay, okay um beautiful scene though but um no but uh yeah no i'm happy about it i made some chili today in my crock Ooh. pot I always love the first soup of soup seasons so. he's cooking he's uh, cooking yeah i was quite literally cooking yeah. and uh and yeah again playoff baseball on the tv it just feels right Absolutely it's a great does. Time of year. yeah i'm i was in la a couple weeks ago and you know it's eternally 70 degrees there so i was i was there and I sort of missed, I think, the transition week in New York from like summer when it was like in the 80s to then the fall. Because when I came back, it was like we had this some unseasonably hot days. Like, again, it was like in the 80s for a couple of days when I was back. And then this weekend, it rained on like late in the week last week. And then all of a sudden it was in the mid 60s. And I'm like, oh, hello, fall. It's October. I've I've missed you so much. Thank you for coming. Uh, Hope you stay for longer than two weeks (laughs) this year. That that would be nice uh, because, yeah, things team t- tend to be unseasonably warm. That's just kind of the expectation I have nowadays. So. Yeah, it, it is unfortunately true. I think everyone's telling me it's going to be a bad winter. So if we could just keep the fall temperatures in that 50 to 70 degree range for a month and a half, obviously that would be Thanksgiving. So that's like too, too far and too much to yeah. hope for probably. But I mean, fall is my favorite season. I think I've, I don't know if we've talked about this on the, fall, on the podcast before, but fall is my favorite season. So, no, I know, I know you're always, you always love like when you can start putting on your jackets. Lo- yeah. The like jackets, that. the yeah. long sleeve shirts, the flannels. I would, yeah, I would open up my closet. I was like, I'm going to wear a flannel to the festival this weekend. And I'm like, it's, it's October. Like, it's, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it, you know, we're quite a few days into October. And I'm just now yeah. for the first time this year thinking about my flannel. So, you know, obviously that was an emotional moment for me. And, and my friends and family this weekend that we all had to rally around. And... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Now it might it might be my favorite season too. I mean, maybe I'm just saying that again because because you know we're in the moment. But like, sure. You know, again, all the things I talked about. You know, you put on Taylor Swift's red. It sure. just feels like it's a sense memory. Season. Yeah. There's yeah. There's yeah. there's something about it that feels nostalgic, and I like totally. that. Um, and if you, I don't know if we, we talked about this either. I can't remember if it was on mic. Or if even it was on one of our Miyazaki countdowns, Scott. But we started college a decade ago. 
Do you want to kill yourself when I say that out loud? Yeah, I mean, that that is that is really rough to hear. It definitely doesn't feel like a decade ago. But in, in some other ways, it does feel like a decade ago sure. um, because I was reflecting. I, I think maybe on our last episode, I was talking about how we went to the music festival and there were just all those people there and everything. And it was just kind of exhausting just spending one day. And then I was thinking about how 10 we years ago, a decade ago, yeah. yeah, you and I both at age 18 went to Bonnaroo and for four straight days basically did what I did, what I was struggling to do for one day. And I was like, man, it really yeah. has been a long time. I really am old now. And I'm sure we were tired then too, but we, we just didn't yeah. care. We were on the farm, you know? I was running on adrenaline, I think. Yeah, because I had never experienced That was a crazy, I mean, that was just a crazy festival too for us. Something like that at the time. Yeah, no, it, it was. Uh, I mean, I, again, I, I don't, those days for me may be over. I mean, I'll still be going to lots of concerts, obviously, but the, the sustained all day things with, you know, crowds that are largely younger than I am, um, sure. that's going to be, going to be tough maybe in the future. Yeah, you know, we all evolve. We all we all move move on. It's at some point you'll stop getting floor tickets to concerts as well because it'll just be too weird to be on the floor with with the eighteen year olds and and whatnot. But you know, it, with the I know that people our age still go to like full week like coach like I have friends every year oh, that yeah. like go to Coachella. Um, but the, but see, you know, the other thing is when I go to these, I want to I want to listen to the music the whole time, right? Yeah, and like. You know the people who go to Coachella, large it's majority some, it's, of them. Some of it is a social. There's a huge yes, social exactly. Yeah, no, that is definitely true. But I'm just saying, like at some point, I like I was just like, how do you keep doing? Like, how do you keep doing that? I I, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to think about that because I still, you know, enjoy doing it a lot. But like, sure. sure, yeah, it just it takes a lot out of me, and it takes takes a few day or two for me to recover uh you know afterwards which yeah i mean if, a few years down the road i'm gonna see like five movies at the new york film festival and i'm gonna be like how did i see 20 how did i yeah. see 20 three or four years ago i how saw did five I in one day one time yeah. no thank god i've never done that i mean i don't even it's actually literally not even possible at the new york film festival i think you can i think realistically you can only see four movies in a day but i can't mm. imagine like i've done three movies now four times at the new york film festival this year so i did it saturday sunday saturday sunday the last two weekends and it's 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 been good. I have not I, it's not been a negative experience in any way. I'd actually say that the day that I saw three films last year, I was way more like psych, like burned out on that day. I can't remember all three movies. I have to go back in my letterbox diary to look. I know Decision to Leave was was the last movie I saw that day. And I think I even said at the time, I want to rewatch it just because I think I was yeah. a little bit zonked mm -hmm. um, in the second half of the film. So. I, that was a negative effect, but I haven't felt that this year. I don't know if it's maybe the particular movies that I saw, although I was feeling a little bit at at my wits end yesterday with The Beast, which is a sci-fi romance. I um, hear, yeah, I hear that one is is a real love it or hate it, I think, experience. Yeah, it. I mean, I, it, the, the movies are not at all similar, but it did remind me of my experience watching a, a film two years ago called Paris. At the New York Film Festival. Also, <laughs> oh, ironically, another Leia Sedu movie. No, 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 yeah. no. Not that bad. I just think it reminded me because Leia Sedu is in the movie. Like she's yeah. a lead in both movies. And I was like, looking at, I mean, first off, Paris was way, 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 way too long. Um, because that movie was like also two and a half hours. The oh, Beast yeah. The is, Beast is like two and a half hours. The Beast is also two and a half hours. You can like kind of understand why the Beast is that long because it's not an anthology, but it's a film set in three different time periods. And so it kind of makes sense why it is such a long film. 
I don't know if it necessarily earns its two and a half hours in the grand scheme of things. Um, probably one of my least favorite films of the festival. Not that I think it's a bad movie, just one of my least favorite films of the festival. And part of me wonders if I came into that not having seen uh, The Zone of Interest and Janet Planet, the film that was so different than anything else I saw this weekend, yeah. frankly. Um, so maybe it was because I saw those two movies before The Beast that affected my, you know, my, my viewing pleasure of it, so to speak. But it also was some parts of, of The Beast. Very funny. Very funny film. Um, it's on my list. So I, I'm still going to watch it, I think. They, one of the time periods, because it's, it's Cloud Atlas is like a lazy comparison, but it's like set in mm. like 1914, 2014, and 2044. Sure. Um, the, the 2014 George, uh, George Mackay, McKay, how you pronounce his last name, character, man, they let him, they gave him a wild one and he cooked. <laughs> like he, okay. He's basically a, a, an incel. Uh, a YouTube a YouTube vlogger incel, uh, which is pretty outstanding. And uh, Louis Wolanski is his name. <laughs> it's just so. So funny. he's Paul Dano from Dumb Money, except Paul Dano somehow in that movie wasn't an incel. I, I was guess. gonna say he's definitely not an incel. He's married, yeah. married with a kid, <laughs> but but he has strong incel vibes, despite you know the reality. He has strong loser vibes. Yeah, that that's yeah. definitely true. Um, somehow Scott, we've been talking for like ten minutes. 10 or 11 minutes. You know what? Still not as long as Mark Maron's intros before he actually gets to the interviews on WTF. So I can solid 30 seconds was us trying to figure out what movie I saw yesterday, which probably yeah, isn't, isn't the greatest. That's time. not going to make the final edit anyway. Yeah. I mean, I guess that. I should just write, write something down here to edit that out. And, you know, maybe I'll edit this out too. Who knows? But I do think we should probably start to talk about the film, uh, sure. which like last week was six or seven films ago for me uh, at this point. But Friday night, I saw this film. You saw it yesterday uh yesterday yes, afternoon last night. Yeah. yeah oh last night okay and that is kitty green's sophomore outing the royal hotel it is a psychological psychological thriller film very similar to kitty green's first feature that is the assistant from late 2019 early 2020 i saw that in the theater right before the pandemic i'm not sure you didn't you did not catch it in a theater before the pandemic i saw it on hulu during you the saw it on hulu right that makes sense so yeah so it's been a few years she's back with her second outing like i said very similar in some respects, but a very different setting. Scott, we were talking about fall a little bit ago. Uh, something, a, a season that I believe the people in this film, the locals in this film would crave, I believe would, they would crave for some fall weather because yeah. this film is about two young American, Canadian. I, it was, I wasn't clear to me whether they were making a joke when they were saying they were Canadian or not. I couldn't I figure it out. I think they're supposed to be Canadian. Okay. Because yeah. the first time they said it, they said it like it was a joke and I couldn't figure it out. Um, but then it seemed because the birthday cake later. In the well, film I say that. that, but then I look at the plot description for the movie. And it says well, that, don't trust the plot description. Don't trust the plot description. Okay. And then, right. Don't trust the plot description. Because um, that's what I'm looking at. That's what I was looking at as well when when, yeah. we, were, when we were just talking. So we're going to say two yeah. young Canadian backpackers. Hannah, who is played by Julia Garner, also in Kitty Green's The Assistant. She was the lead in that film as well. And Liv, played by Julia Henwick, uh, are traveling on a cruise ship around Australia, presumably from some other location originally. But... Liv has run out of money. They find some temp work in the Australian outback at a bar called the Royal Hotel run by Billy named uh, played by Hugo Weaving, where they become uh, essentially temp workers. Clearly, this this bar has rotating temp workers. When they arrive, two women are about to leave the temp position. And the goal here, of course, is to make some money, do a little bit more vacationing before heading back to Canada. However, once they arrive, they realize that the 
culture and the vibes maybe of this Australian outback town and the Royal Hotel are maybe not uh, to be desired so much as they encounter several uh, disturbed male patrons. Uh, the patriarchy, obviously something that was a, a big part of her first feature, The Assistant, all about the treatment of Julia Garner's character at working at a production company in New York City uh, for a Harvey Weinstein stand-in, ostensibly. Uh, this film takes a slightly different angle, turning it into broader society, and and essentially Scott asking the question, are there any men that we can really trust and really count on in the grand scheme of things? So Scott, I'll stop there because obviously a lot of stuff does happen in this film. There's a, several different characters. Toby Wallace, sort of resident Australian film uh, cameo appearance, not a cameo, but a supporting actor uh, is in this film. And, and there's some other people deeper down the cast list as well, Scott. But what did you think of the Royal Hotel? You were obviously very high on The Assistant, I believe, back in 2020. You were a huge fan of that movie. Yes. And I know that this film, I think, made your honorable mentions list earlier this year when we were talking about most anticipated. So tell me your thoughts. Did the Royal Hotel live up to your anticipation? Yeah, Scott, you know, obviously we've had different experiences here recently because you've been going to the New York Film Fest. You've been seeing a lot of, you know, amazing movies that I mean, get to see eventually. But it feels like going into this movie, I was like crying out for a great movie because it feels like it has been a while since we have talked about like a great movie. We talked about some really good movies. We talked about Bottoms. You know, we talked about sure. the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which I liked a lot. I thought Good, was not great. Both of those films. In my yes, opinion. very good. Yeah. Even but not quite in the great echelon. And I'm happy to say this movie got there for me. I thought it was excellent. Um, it's funny, I mentioned um, on an episode, I don't even remember what the context was, but actually maybe it was on our most anticipated when I was bringing this movie up, but I mentioned that I had seen an Australian film uh, last year for another show that I do called The Roundtable on YouTube. Uh, called Wake and Fright, a 70s Australian movie that's kind of like a classic of the outback cinema. And I never thought that that movie was going to become relevant again when I watched it. It's a crazy movie where they actually killed real kangaroos. Look it up. Um, you, you, you see kangaroo murder happen in the movie, but it's a crazy movie with Donald Pleasance um, from the 70s. No, nothing nothing pleasant about the sounding of that movie, I'll tell you that. Much. No, I, I never thought it was going to become relevant again. Um, and so soon after I watched it and and it, it has because this movie has a lot of similarities, at least in terms of the setup of the movie. Right. That Wake and Fright is about this guy who ends up getting stranded in the outback because, yeah, he basically runs out of money and um, he can't can't leave. Um, it's not quite at this situation isn't quite as dire, perhaps, as the situation we see in Wake and Fright. And of course, the big difference is, as you mentioned, Scott, like that this movie is about is a commentary on toxic masculinity, um, just like uh, just like The Assistant was. Uh, and, and what I really liked about The Assistant is that it was so subtle. It was such a quiet film. It was really about the mundanity of, you know, toxic masculinity. Again, it was about how these little microaggressions and everything just happen in everyday life and they're just kind of a part of this woman's day and she's just supposed to um you know accept that endure that you know whatever and, or, and um, most importantly she has to accept it if she wants to have a career 
I think right. If she, yeah, in, if in she wants to specifically. exist, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, we also see the logical endpoint of that sort of behavior, which is the scene that she has with, I think it's Matthew McFadden, right, that plays the boss, right, who, um, did I just imagine him? But I, I think it was him. And, you know, he he comes right out and says it, basically. Um, Ma- Matthew McFadden plays the head of the HR department. Right. He doesn't he doesn't play the boss. Right. He doesn't play the boss. But that's yeah. the big scene in the movie when she goes in to talk to him. To the HR person. I, for, I forget the exact line he has, but he says something like, you know. He he, he makes a sexually inappropriate remark, from what I recall, and just yeah. kind of, you know, it, it, it removes all of the um, the vagueness from everything else that's been going on. So mm-hmm. this movie uh, is a little bit more on the nose, I guess, uh, it's fair to say than the assistant was like, there's, you know, it, it's, it's a lot more, uh, waving its hand about the fact that there is sinister behavior going on, right? This is a thriller and you're every scene that where that takes place in this bar, the tension is ratcheted up. Like it feels like, you know, something could happen at any possible second. It's not about anything mundane really in the way that um the assistant was it feels like violence and the like could break out at at any real second in this movie Uh, and that's part of what i liked about it because i think that the atmosphere is so um so strong inside that um inside that bar you just feel you know on edge the entire time and that's us as men right i can't imagine as a woman watching the movie um what the the feelings that you know you must experience um maybe putting yourself in the shoes of julia garner's character in particular because she's the one who i mean they both both of them experience you know their fair share but i think she probably gets the brunt of it from what we see in the movie um and there's reasons for that as well in turn and how it's framed in the film because she's the person who's less agreeable more resistant to the misogynistic microaggressions that you're talking about whereas jessica henwick's character Liv is much more willing to play along and appease and placate whereas uh hannah is is tired of people's shit much earlier on oh yeah um and i think all of that so i think all of that is done even though it's less subtle than the assistant i think all that is done really well and i still think from a filmmaking perspective kitty green does a really good job um, in a lot of ways. Visually, I think the movie has some really great shots in it, um, which maybe I could talk about a little later on. But um, you know, so some some images that really pack a punch. Um, it's not just you know the dialogue or the scenes inside the bar, um, but you know, there's a lot of artistic choices being made in the visuals that I appreciated. Um, and yeah, I think it presents a lot of different types of toxic masculinity. Uh, we have a lot of different male supporting characters popping up. They're all a, a little bit different in you know the way that they interact with our two leads. Um, but you know, slowly the threads begin to unravel again. Some some of them you can see from the beginning that something's not right here. Some of them it takes a little bit longer, but you know spoilers i guess as you might expect by the end you kind of learn that the answer to scott's question what is no there there aren't really any men that you can trust and that's certainly not a new idea maybe that we've seen there have been a lot of me too movies recently 
um, you know, obviously because the Me Too movement is a recent event, but, um, you know, th there have been successful and unsuccessful examples of this type of movie. Um, and I think the movies that have been unsuccessful are the ones that where the message gets muddled, right? Um, movies like Cat Person, which we talked about earlier this year, movies like Promising Young Woman, movies like, you know, I thought, I, maybe I'm in the minority on this one, but Women Talking last year also had some issues for me that sort of distracted from the point that the movie was trying to make. Um, but this movie doesn't fall into those traps. I think the messaging is very clear. I like where the movie ends up. Um, I think it is able to get, get across this point about, um, yeah, you can't really trust, you know, men when you're in the position of, of these women. Uh, I, th I think it, it is able to get that point across in a way that doesn't feel heavy handed in a way that doesn't feel condescending, like it's talking down to you. And in a way that actually feels, you know, productive, not like the movie is just spinning its wheels to say something that we all already know. Um, so in addition to being a really good thriller, I think, again, it establishes Kitty Green and Julia Garner, like as a great duo, because I think she's great in the movie. But Kitty Green specifically as, you know, one of our best, if not our best right now at making these, um, you know, me too i keep coming back to that but me too uh films about me too and and you know everything that is enveloped in that um in a way that um is is successful and you know actually has something to say and doesn't muddle its point so i, I thought this was a great uh, follow-up to the assistant and you know she definitely doesn't hit the sophomore slump for me yeah, I think I would take exception to a couple a couple of the like points that you, that you've made in terms of whether it's heavy-handed or whether it fits all together quite nicely. I you know, it's as with all of these types of movies, I I think that they their mileage may vary on how I don't know what the right word is, like believable some of the stuff is and I think that part of that process is understanding the setting of the film. I mean, frankly, the Australian Outback is is a really unfamiliar location. I think not just to sure. you know you and I living in the U.S., but also just <laughs> on the screen, right? Like very few films are set in this location, and so I'm not sure whether setting the film there really like serves the end purpose of the otherwise like what otherwise the themes are sort of shown as and i and it's it's it creates such an interesting juxtaposition with the assistant where it's a a film set in one of the you know obviously the busiest cities in the world in new york i mean there's obviously busier and larger cities than new york but you know it's obviously one of the one of the bigger cities in in, in the country in the world and yet it is still an incredibly narrowly focused film on essentially like i think one day in the life of this this character the royal hotel sort of takes a skew an opposite skew where probably one of the most isolated places in the world they don't even have cell service in the town and there's sort of lots of men and no other women really around them with the exception of maybe the the cook and, and the woman that i assume an indigenous it looks like an indigenous person aboriginal um, yeah yeah to to end their experiences obviously there's a lot tied up in that as well and so it, there's a little bit maybe there's more people in the film, I think is, is, is fair to say. There's more characters. 
but the experience, even in this sort of opposite uh, setting, ultimately translates to maybe the same end result. And I think it's interesting to have those sort of two very polarized settings for your for your films, because in sort of their own way, those are two specific experiences where most people are not going to work as a production assistant or, um, you know, someone who's like working the uh, coordinate, like coordinating their boss's schedule. And then so most people are not going to work in a bar in the middle of the Australian outback. But in many ways, I, I found the assistant to be more believable in that. There, I don't know, maybe just because there's so many office settings where I could imagine that happening. And I'm not sure that I could imagine a ton of settings where the Royal Hotel happens. Not that the themes aren't like universally true, right? Like not that I can't identify the experiences that are being shown on the screen as something that are believable or relatable. But just the setting itself makes it feel like it's set, set you up for this, uh, you know, almost more fictional experience, right? Because it seems so um un- unreal of a setting right like it feels like the setup for a horror movie it does it feels like the setup for a horror movie and kind of like two women find themselves in the middle of nowhere in australia and they're surrounded by these toxic men who it's like what's going to happen and genre wise that does set the movie up quite well but i i think some of the twists and turns the film takes along the way I- i'm not sure that it comes together quite as successfully but to your point around I think the clear, like the clear talent and filmmaking ability of Kitty Green, I think that does come through in the film. I think that maybe there are certain elements that don't tie up nicely together for me, and and I do want to talk about those later on, especially towards, especially at the very end of the film. There's a couple of things that I do want to that I do want to point out, but I do find that so that t- the t- the tension that I think was always present in the assistant in like a really um, sinister way is here in force even more. And part of the reason why maybe it's it's able to be even more um, sort of focused and felt is because of this almost like horror film like setup um, setting concept, however you want to describe it in the movie overall. And when it comes to the acting at Julia Garner, I, every time I see her in something, I'm like, do I need to go watch Ozark? Do I got to go see what 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 really got her going? And A lot of seasons. Four, five. How many is it? I don't actually remember. Four or five. Something like that, I'm watching Game of Thrones of right now, so I don't think that that should be a barrier yeah, that's for me. Uh, and then Jessica Henwick, but our, our girl Bugs. Uh, yeah. You know, pick pick your uh, what's her name in Glass Onion? What's her character's name in Glass Onion? Peg, uh, right? Pe- Peg. That's right. Peg and Bugs. What a, incredible character names that she's taken on over the years. I think she's a, it, she's really good here as well. I think they're both played really well. I was going to ask, so this is one thing I I wanted to point out, which I actually liked, and I wonder if it, you know, is a response at all to your sort of um, maybe misgiving about the setting of the movie, maybe making it seem less tethered to the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, The opening scene of the movie, and particularly the character that Herbert Nordrum plays, uh, Herbert Nordrum, the guy from The Worst Person in the World. I was going to say, he looks familiar. Plays plays her second, plays Julie's second boyfriend. Um, yeah, but he shows up as like a I think he's Swedish or Norwegian or I guess he's, he's Swedish Norwegian probably. But anyway, um, Torsten. who you know basically picks up Hannah um, on this cruise ship that they're on, um, and he ends up showing back up later because they like call him for a ride, mm-hmm. um, but basically just turns into the same br- drunken buffoon as the rest of them. And I feel like maybe 
that's a you know it, it's not perfect a perfect response to your uh misgiving a little bit but i do feel like maybe that is an attempt to say hey well look yeah there, there's a lot of slovenly looking you know sinister australian guys out here in this isolated location you know like straight out of a horror movie like your point but this you know guy who they thought they could trust who seems like a you know much more normal everyday type of guy um that they meet on this cruise ship also turns out maybe not to be as sinister or as violent as um they ultimately are but um you know again he he turns into a drunken buffoon in the same way that hugo weaving's character kind of is as well yeah honestly that doesn't I don't really see that too much as a counter because, frankly, Scott, I don't know many guys who would drive two to three hours in the middle of the Australian outback on their vacation to <laughs> give a random chick that they met out with on a boat for a couple minutes a ride to back. Well, to the he airport. probably thought he was getting more out of the deal. That's well, no, probably, but that's what I'm gonna. Yeah. But that's what I'm gonna say, and like that's why, like even in that, like obviously, yes, that is true. That is what he thought, but like even in that, like, man, is this guy down that bad? Like, I'm not like, I mean, maybe I don't know. I just sort of question it beggars belief a little bit. Like he's taking a whole day out of his vacation to drive into the outback and back for this to like hook up with this girl, basically. I mean, maybe, maybe, but I just like, again, that didn't really help with the believability of it, but it does help with a point of like, you know, even people not in the, out it, to your, what you're saying yeah. is true. Yeah, right. I just, the it didn't necessarily help the believability. Um, and I think that's ultimately that character specifically, I think is actually one of the, one of the low points of the film for me, because I think if it had actually just stayed isolated in the outback, you can be like, there's clearly different flavors of guys here in the bar, in the Royal Hotel that you can point to. And just adding another sort of outlandish, in my mind, maybe not, but out like to me, outlandish character who's a bit of a throwaway character because even though he comes back at the end of the film, he's still only on screen for like a couple extra minutes and he was on screen for 30 seconds at the beginning of the film. It didn't really seem necessary to, to me and it didn't really add to it didn't really do for me what you're sort of describing because sure. it, it, it didn't really work as well as sort of say the, the portrayal of like Toby Wallace's character, Maddie, or uh -huh. even, um, you know, James Freshville's character teeth. I think those are all examples that I think sort of span the spectrum further than maybe like your more traditional antagonist might be in this film, like a dolly, uh, Daniel Henshaw's character. Yes. Yeah. So it felt like there were enough flavors already where I didn't need another, one that sort of didn't really connect with me on a believability level, but uh, th that's that that's aside. Maybe we can jump back to some of those topics <clears throat> a little bit later on. Let's talk about Hannah and Liv, though. Julia Garner, Jessica Henwick. You had a lot of praise for Julia Garner there briefly a, a few minutes ago. Talk a little bit more about your thoughts about her, as well as Jessica Henwick joining the sort of protagonist here as Liv. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's actually it's, it is a fairly similar performance, maybe to um, what she does in the assistant. In, in that, I think the strength of it is like what's lying just below the surface um, during a lot of these scenes. There's one scene which is probably the standout scene of the movie for me, where she's tending bar alone, and this Dolly guy is there harassing her. Essentially, this older couple also comes in who's on their anniversary, um, and there's just so much tension in that. And yeah, there's a moment where I, I don't exactly know what Dolly says, but he, you know, clearly crosses a line. He's throwing money at her at one point and she just kind of stops at the bar and like 
just kind of like grabs the side of the bar and just like doesn't say Clinch, anything. Like clinches up and it's sort of yeah, yeah, like the the look on her face is just like you can see in that moment like everything that she's holding in. Yep. And you know, there were moments like that in the assistant too. So I mean, you know, maybe it's a similar type performance, but like um I, I think she's so good at doing that sort of you know simmering tension like that's what is lying just below the surface like i said the rage that women in her position probably have felt for many many years and feel like that they have to keep there right because they can't you know they can't let it show or else they could put themselves in in real serious danger yeah i think it, it's constantly one of the things that i sort of ask myself or or sort of connect back to the point that i make is like can you imagine Dolly ever doing that to a man? And the answer is like, obviously, no, like probably not. Like, there's just no way yeah. that, that Dolly oh, yeah. would treat. And to your point about the performance there from Julia Gardner, I think it is similar in some respects. Maybe this scene in particular is quite is, is quite similar. But overall, I think this is actually a much louder. I mean, the assistant, she's like meek, like incredibly submissive yeah. um, because of this, the power dynamic that exists in her ultimately yes she steps up more here. yeah yeah at the at the end but it's like really the performance is is even less verbal in a lot of ways in the assistant whereas here she's a lot more of the she she's more willing to stand up for herself in a way that the film obviously portrays as antagonistic to the men because obviously it makes sense given the context of the film but she's allowed to i think be a little bit more vocal earlier on a little bit like a little bit louder in quotation marks about that, which I think does ultimately give a different flavor of performance than what she had in the assistant. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think there are some different shades to it um, that she shows here. I think maybe my comment was more that the the strongest parts of the performance for me were also the strongest parts of her performance in the assistant. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that that scene that I pointed out there is one example, just one example of uh, a few sure. times in the movie that you see that happening. Sure. Another one is, I guess, would be the scene where Toby Wallace, um, you know, is coming on to her. Trying, yeah, and, trying to hook up with her. Yeah, yeah. She has to resist him multiple times before he actually, you know, gets the, the message. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. What, what about Jessica Henwick? What did you think about Liv? Yeah, I thought she was a, a good performance, too. Again, she counterbalances the hannah character nicely as like the you know trying to like you said earlier go along with it she has this more sort of free-spirited oh we're on an adventure right this is what we wanted we're here for an adventure and this is just an adventure it's a cultural experience uh maybe we're not really in any danger um type of of character which i think is interesting to see because i don't know if you necessarily get that type of character in in all of these um movies like the you know the the other female who um is also almost acting as a foil to our you know protagonist at times especially when it comes to this dolly character right like she is very like she's she's going to like some length to sort of explain away his sinister behavior as oh he's just you know lonely or something. i think she even says that when he's just lonely um and so i thought that Maybe that dynamic could have been um, exploited even more uh, between the the two characters, between Hannah and Liv. Um, but I liked the character and her performance. 
um, again, as sort of a, a counterbalance um, to the, you know, the, the very pragmatic uh, Julia Garner character that is like, you know, sees, sees the danger very clearly from the beginning. Like, I, you know, that's not the case for, for everyone. Um, and I think that the movie does a good job of portraying her experience as well. Yeah, I think Liv is one of the elements of the movie where the film has, I think, arguably in some ways, at, at least if not more potential than a different kind of potential than the assistant, because there really is this relationship between Hannah and Liv that there's like a, a little bit of a flavor of in the assistant. Like you get the the care. I for, It's um, is it Froseth? I forget her first name. Christine um, for Seth. Christine yeah. for Seth is is this actress, this young actress in the assistant, mm -hmm. right? Where there's this like very brief, almost missed connection between Julia Gardner and her character in the assistant. And there's obviously Julia Gardner's boss, like direct boss, who's also a woman in the assistant. So there's like all these little small opportunities for that sort of like female relationship uh, or relationship between women in these really, really misogynistic settings to be explored. But the fact that they make live such a central character in this movie, the fact that Kitty Green really clearly is interested in that relationship and exploring that relationship this time, I think gives the film a lot of potential. I, I, I do kind of agree with what you're saying though, where I'm not sure they always realize the potential of that in the film, because there is this sort of lingering simmering tension between the two of them, partly because you, you know, Julia Garner's Hannah is blaming Liv that they're there at all because she, she ran out of money and, and wasn't able to, you know, basically continue their vacation on is it yeah bondi beach which is what they're always talking about sort of in the film oh yeah but also in part because to your point live here is more accepting or more normalizing of the behavior that they're sort of being that they're experiencing and they're being treated with in in the bar and that's something that obviously hannah is much less okay with i think this is where the ending sort of comes into play for me and one of the one of the not necessarily disappointing elements of the ending, but what one thing I just wasn't really quite sure fully what to make of is the fact that when push comes to shove, like right at the end of the movie, we're talking like minutes left in the film and something happens, Liv very quickly turns about face and, and basically just comes running sort of onto Hannah's side. And in some ways that sort of solidarity makes sense to me, but it doesn't feel totally resonant in the different parts. And, and part of the complicating factor is that Liv is often very drunk in the film. And so clearly it doesn't, it doesn't have all of her yes. wits about her at times. So it's kind of always, it's kind of hard to always be able to really read the sort of sober thoughts of Liv and where her brain really sits at with what Hannah is doing and, and, and how she's sort of dealing with the different situations that they're being put in by the male patrons of the bar but one of that relationship there, it didn't feel like the circle was fully finished in the film where, where the film ended and, and sort of where the resolution of the, of the movie shakes out. Like, obviously, you know, if you've seen the film, things are and I guess mild spoilers here, but they are copacetic between the two of them at the end of the film. But that sort of final status of the two characters of develops very, very rapidly at the end of the film. Yeah. It's she sobers up very fast, it seems. <laughs> yeah, and I think that in some in some ways that does make sense because something, I mean, I don't know why we're dancing around it. The fact that like that Hannah comes out at the end of the film and has, you know, she's been, essentially been bludgeoned, you could say whether it's accidental or not, by the yeah. handle of an Toby axe um, by Toby Wallace's character, that 
is a very eye-opening moment for Liv, and she sort of immediately sobers up, quite literally, because she's quite drunk at that point in the film, sobers up and comes on to onto Hannah's side. And not that that's not, again, not that that's not believable. I think I just wanted a little bit more development and exploration of that that specific conflict between the two of them. Yeah, no, and that's what I think that's what I was saying. Uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah, think that was. we could have exploited that even a little bit more. Um, so maybe one area where it falls slightly short. But um, yeah, I think just having the, that character in the movie at all is, you know, a win and a step forward, I think, for, um, you know, this sort of sort of movie. Yeah. And, and I think it's such an it, it's such an important and interesting dynamic because this doesn't obviously we talk a lot about this phenomenon when we're talking about the Me Too movement. But this idea of like silent acceptance and like enablement of powerful men being able to continue to perpetrate against, you know, women who are not as strongly positioned within the industry or this notion that like a lot of people knew that something was happening, but they just decided to either not say anything or to be okay with it. And I think this, this is what starts to real. I mean, again, that, that is kind of there in the assistant, don't get me wrong, but this is like a, a more real world example of that where some women just sort of normalize and accept the behavior more than others. And like, I think the like fact Carol or not, what's her name? The her name's not Carol. He calls her Carol as like a, I don't know, it's some sort of term. But uh, the, no, the thought, Aboriginal is that not who, is that not her name? I thought that was. Her I name. don't. I don't think that's her name. I think her name is something else. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is her name. Um, I don't know. But anyway, the the woman who has clearly worked there as the cook for some time clearly has a, and has a some relationship, relationship with Billy with Hugo yeah. Weaving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like you say, seems to put up with it. Like in some places will sort of stand up for for Hannah People. and yeah. Liv, but in terms of her own self, seemingly a long time ago has sort of dispensed with standing up for her herself in a lot of these situations because, you know, Hugo Weaving at one point even physically, you know, kind of grabs her and tries to harm her. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she gets upset with him, but then, you know, seconds later when he, you know, knocks himself out, basically passes out. She's like right over running by his side, like really concerned about him. So that's an interesting character as well, I think. Yeah. And I mean, to be, it's much more in my, in my view, it's much more complicated with that because they clearly have some sort of relationship that's not yeah, just yeah. coworkers. So obviously there's more emotion and, and, and feeling built into that, but you're absolutely right. At the same time, there's, there's obviously another, another, woman there in the in the setting as well that maybe is more similar to or or more similar comp to julia gardner's boss and the assistant or something like that but i think that enough of talking about hannah and Liv. obviously you know we are two men we need to talk about the men of this movie we need to represent the you know the male species here because i think one of the fascinating parts of the movie that i was talking about is as much as the assistant was uh, focused on the sort of powerful film and media exec, this film is sort of interested in sampling different flavors of what you know your everyday toxic male might look like. We've already started to talk about some of those different flavors, and we can talk about the performances here as well as we go through this. But I really sort of outlined here on my notes four different men that are sort of presented to Liv and Hannah one is, of course, Billy, the owner of the bar that's played by Hugo Weaving. There's Maddie, which is Toby Wallace's character, who's maybe your more traditional, like, 
almost like fuckboy like character who's like just trying to ingratiate himself and hook up with uh hannah but then there's also teeth who's a bit quieter and i think especially at the end of the film you get a sort of different i really you get to really understand the at least kitty green's perspective on this kind of person and then dolly who i think is your more traditional antagonist and the last of those teeth is played by james fresh i don't know how to pronounce it freshville freshville i'm not sure and dolly is played by daniel henshaw but Scott, what did you think of these four performances? Because I think they are important in understanding the the antagonists of the film, and so far as what what the film is sort of placing up against uh, Liv and Hannah, the Julia Garner, Jessica Henwick characters. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I again, I, this is one of the strong elements of the movie. I think that there are these different perspectives um, that are you know portrayed, and I think. You know, with Hugo Weaving's character, for example, we were kind of just talking about it, but he's almost this sort of cautionary tale of here's what these younger guys may become, right? Like he here's here's what the future may um, may hold for them, and you know, likewise, here's what if if uh, if Hannah or Liv choose to, you know, align themselves with one of these guys, you know, then maybe they'll end up like like Carol, like the woman who's there as the cook. Um, and yeah, he's just a, he's a drunken buffoon basically. Um, but um, then I think Teeth, who you mentioned is, is one that I would highlight as being a, a more interesting character because yeah, he's the quieter guy. He is interested in live in particular. He like very awkwardly tries to ask her out even at one point and, um, you know, it was unsuccessful, of course. And I was concerned for a minute about what the movie was going to do with the character at the end, because we're you were you were talking about the scene out, you know, outside the bar where Liv finally gets wise to what's going on. And um, that scene, the, like the, the climax of that scene is like that. <laughs> Moments after Liv runs over to Hannah. Yeah. Yeah, I actually thought it was a, a funny moment because you see Toby Wallace just take off, take off in yeah. this strange looking run and you have no idea why. And then all of a sudden teeth just comes flying in in his truck and slams into the truck where uh, where Dolly. Toby Wallace was standing. Yeah. yeah, like just moments before. And, and Dolly is right there, too, and ends up, you know, jumping out and beating up Dolly. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, really, like we're going to have the guy come to their rescue or whatever. Um, I, I mean, I kind of trusted the movie to not really do that, but like, I was like worried for a second, but then, you know, he comes into the bar and I think, um, you know, you you're saying maybe it reveals what Kitty Green thinks about this type of person. I, I think it's, he, he's very pathetic is, is how he comes off in that last moment there where he also, again, seems to be drunk and is basically thinks that his act of, you know, "Quote unquote heroism, heroism. is yeah. going to you know win Liv's uh, attention and that she's going to just fall into his arms basically. Yeah, right it's there. it's real nice guy simp type yeah. behavior for it's sure. It's the Bo Burnham character in uh in Promising Young Woman. It's like that sure. type of role. I think you see that character in a lot of places, right? That's an interesting, yeah. definitely interesting. Look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I remembered that much enough about Bo Burnham's character to be able to cite that character sure. as a as a similar I wish one I did. in Promising <laughs> Young Woman. But I think you see that that type of character all over the place. 
And yeah, you're absolutely right. Like it would have been very strange if the film had sort of introduced Teeth as a sort of hero because throughout the whole film, I think he presents a different flavor where he's clearly someone who's very interested in live. He's been rejected and he's someone who's sort of teased, I think for his sort of earnest interest in live. But then he's also shown as this sort of drunkard throughout the film, right? Like he drunkenly runs into the trait, like Billy's trailer, you know, several scenes, but you know, several nights before what happens at the end of the film. And like he's not a, he's not a stand-up guy either. And, And the sort of facade of, of being like a bit more, you know, serene or calm or cool headed for a majority of the film, obviously before the end where he's sort of in like a rage at the end of the movie and his willingness to sort of perpetrate violence in order, you know, and he's like yelling things like she was mine. I told you she was mine from the yeah. beginning. Like mm-hmm. he's yelling stuff like, uh, you know, obviously very ownership flat, like tinged language on his like right to approach live or whatever. And so it just shows you that, it kind of goes back to the point I guess we were making, but there's not really any guys on your side um, at the end of the day. And, you know, I, I sort of skipped over Torsten, but he's another example as well that you had highlighted earlier that he's another person who you can't really rely on at the end of the day. And, and these sort of four or five different flavors of men sort of all come together. I think teeth is probably the most well done in the sense of like, it could have gone horribly wrong at the end to your point, mm-hmm. but it was clearly steered and directed the right way the entire time. Torsten, I obviously talked about as some, as a character who I I really did feel was ultimately kind of unnecessary, but does maybe I think in in a more favorable view show you that you know it's not it's not just the community like you said earlier it is people in broader society as, as well. I mean, Torsten just feels like another flavor of Maddie, right? Which is ultimately why they they butt heads in a way, right? Like their yeah. their interest in Hannah puts them at odds with each other in the few scenes that they share. And I do, I do also like the the Maddie character. Like I think Toby Wallace does a nice job. Like there's just something about him when I see him. I'm like, this guy's up to no good. And maybe it's because sure, of sure. him and the society. The, society, right? yeah. the first thing we ever saw him in, and yeah. you know, he was definitely up to no good in that show. But um, sure, um, you know, maybe it's it, it's just something about his presence. But I, I felt like they did a good job with that character. Again, he's not really fully the nice guy quote unquote in the way that um that that teeth is um because i like the scene again where he tries to come on to um to hannah uh because Mm -hmm. you know it's not over the top i guess like he doesn't actually quote unquote he doesn't actually violate her but you feel like he has violated her he doesn't Even assault her, but he is pushing he boundaries. Yeah. yeah, right. He is pushing boundaries. He's continuing to touch her after she said no multiple times, and ultimately he does just leave and he doesn't come back. Um, but again, you feel like that she has been violated, even though no sort of assault has taken place. Which is she has been exactly. made to feel deeply uncomfortable because of his yes. behavior. Yeah, which is exactly how Kitty Green wants you to feel in that moment. I think. Um, I mean, that's the whole so, feeling of of the assist, like the whole movie and the assistant. You're just like, yeah. this is uncomfortable. <laughs> this is deeply yes. uncomfortable. Yes. Um. Yeah. No. I think that's a really a really great point. Where like Maddie is is the person who, the sort of smoother operator, if you will, mm-hmm. and is able to ingratiate himself. He has a lot of charisma. He, unlike Dolly, he has a lot of charisma and a lot of charm. And obviously, the way he introduces himself to them is is very childish and 
and you know crass with his joke about cider um and asking mm-hmm. for a specific brand of cider uh you know i don't want to spoil that joke because i look i'm i'm someone who is fond of crass humor i enjoyed the joke <laughs> ultimately it was you know it lasted for too long like all those kinds of jokes always do in bars it lasted too long mm-hmm. but i do look i don't want to spoil it for people who are interested in it but I do think that he is the character and also just Toby Wallace in general. Like, I think he's a really, he, he's probably an underused actor. Having said that, I also haven't seen the the mini series that he was in in the last 12 months called pistol that he was the lead of on Hulu, where mm-hmm. he was playing Steve Jones, the, the lead of sex pistols. I think the guitarist, um, you know, he's not the, he's not the lead, but he's the lead in the show. Sorry. I should have clarified. He's the lead. In the okay. Show. The cool. show is about Steve Jones. Um, that is a mm-hmm. good call out, yes. But, you know, I haven't seen that. He is uh, deep, deep, deep down the cast list of the bike riders later this year. I think he's like, I guess, one of the like, probably tertiary or deeper members of that. That, that definitely fits. That fits. Gang. But, I mean, that's yeah. whole, absolutely like if you told me that Toby Wallace was playing a, a minor character in a biker gang, like, you know, like, yeah, that man, that makes sense. I can see it. Mm-hmm. So I think it was good to see him in this because I don't I don't know if I've seen him in anything since. Uh, is it Baby Teeth? Is that the name of the movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which I Another thought was, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Which it was, which was a great film. Uh, one of the one of our COVID. I think that was a COVID movie, right? It was, was a COVID yeah. movie we reviewed on the podcast. That there, you know, in a normal mm-hmm. year, there's absolutely no way we'd ever touch that film. Yeah, not that it was not not a statement about the quality of the movie. Just is so obscure that there's no way we would have covered that normally. Right. But yeah, I mean, Dolly, you talked about the sort of scene where he is over the top harassing Hannah in the bar and then that, that sort of is his big scene right i don't know if there's much more to say other than he's just sort of you, in some ways along with billy you're sort of like stereotypical more boomer like oh like what's wrong i'm being nice to you look at me being yeah. misogynistic in this backhanded way and oh why aren't you why aren't you liking this why aren't you doing these things for me like kind of and, very like aggressive harassment yeah. type behavior. And then like when he starts to, he's like, he's a, he's a master sort of manipulator. Cause like he, you know, this scene, he finally like starts to leave, like he's going to leave or whatever, which mm-hmm. is obviously what Hannah wants, but he goes about it in such a way, like, like, to well, I can, so you want me to leave, yeah. you know, I'm going to leave now, whatever to where she like, basically guilts her sort of into being like, no, come sit back down, finish your beer. And then he does, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And perpetuating the whole, the whole set, you know, the whole circumstance, the whole scene. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, look, I I think that it is a really good job laying out that those different types of guys. Obviously I took exception to Torsten, just the the need for that character didn't feel totally there for me. But I think that, we didn't talk a lot about Billy, but the fact that he's just sort of obviously very okay with everything that's happening in his bar um, speaks for itself, right? Like he maybe is the, uh, the enabler, so to speak of all the bad behavior ultimately. And sort of that you can, you can create excuse after excuse after excuse for why, like he has to run a business. He has to make money. He has to make ends meet. And so he can't pick and choose his clientele, but, you know, he obviously is creating the culture of the bar and if not creating it, then certainly enabling it. So the book stops somewhere and, um, you know, maybe it stops and as his sort of brain spill out onto the floor of of the Royal Hotel before he's taken to a hospital that's two to three hours away. You think he survives? You think he makes it? I think there's no way he makes it to that hospital. No, two to three hours. No. Yeah, I didn't think so either. 
Scott, one of the last things before we do wrap up, you mentioned at the beginning that you wanted to talk about some of the artistic choices in the visuals of the film. So I want to make sure we have time to go back and let you say your piece about that. We can transition maybe into my favorite scene or moment, possibly, and I can call out a couple of those moments if you're ready. But um, well, why don't you go ahead and talk about the visuals that you like and then sure. maybe save the last one and we can sort of transition at that point into your favorite scene. Yeah, well, there was really only two that I wanted to mention in particular, but um, okay. one is uh, towards the end when, um, you know, they have like made the decision that they're going to leave and live is upstairs and Hannah's in the bar and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, it's night and you hear a knocking on the door and you just see like this silhouetted figure yeah. like through the door and you you don't actually even know who it is like again you hear the voice of the person but I, at least for me I felt like the voice was indistinguishable I was like this could be a number of the are you talking about the person characters. Maddie singing is that what you're talking about Yes, I, I think he's singing, right? Yeah. It did. It did um, really. It did really sound like Maddie, but I do take your point about the visual. No, I, and I thought that's who it was too. But I just, I was sitting there thinking, I was like, yeah, I mean, it, it could. But anyway, like then she goes, she thinks she's safe. She opens the door, and then like Dolly is standing right there behind him. I thought like the whole way that that was staged was really good. And then there's a scene, like it's a very quick image early on when toby wallace when maddie has taken them out for a drive and he has stopped somewhere i think maybe to get gas or something like that i don't remember but um there's like a, a cut in the middle of the scene and because time has passed and uh when when the cut happens you know they've been having this like nice time in the car they're singing along to the radio and then there's a cut that happens and we see julia garner and her face is like pressed up against yeah. the glass and she's she has fallen asleep is what we eventually see but like in that moment you don't really know what's happened and the way that her face is pressed up in the glass even it almost looks like there's a little bruise or something there could even be like a bruise on her she i just thought that was a great way to like ratchet up the tension of like oh well you were having a great time like singing along in the car and then bang like in the in the drop of a, an eye here you are you're pressed up against the window and it looks like you've been um you know, beaten up basically. So I, I just thought that was a good ambiguous moment that, um, you know, she was able to use the camera really well uh, in a movie where, you know, you may not necessarily think about the visuals first and foremost as being sort of the, the focal point. Yeah. Interesting. I, I did not even half consider that, um, that view of, of that shot when it sort of hard cuts to her. Sleeping. I just thought it was funny that she'd like fallen asleep like that. Yeah. I was well, like, I mean, and maybe if I maybe it was just sort of my in the moment reaction. Maybe if I see it again, I'm like, no, you just like made that up in your head. But you were too worried. You were too worried for, <laughs> for the girls, you know? Um, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> no, I look, it, it, I'm not saying it's not a fair interpretation. It's just interesting because I, yeah. I was just laughing the whole time. It was, it was funny. Sure. Uh, look, favorite Scott, how do you feel about snakes? Um, yeah, boy, that was a, a big sucker in this movie. Um, you know, the, the real stand in for the, uh, the kangaroo, I guess here, but I don't think they killed a, a real snake or anything. Do you but... think that Dolly put the snake in the building? Yes. Okay, cool. Well, and, and, you know, initially what I thought was going to happen was, cause he goes like into their room, right. To get the snake. I thought he was going to like 
get the snake out and then stay in their room basically like and refuse to leave and oh, like you know be really you know aggressive t- towards them which obviously didn't happen but um he did what he did was aggressive in a different way when he yes it, put it the, was put and, the snake in a jar and left hannah's name on it right uh, i think that was the the plan all along yeah i also thought that but then i questioned it for a while um i think they want you to question it but yeah that's probably true but that was my favorite scene in the movie because you talk about like there's a real shock value in that and then again i was sort of questioning like was probably just like them right they're probably questioning whether you know was this a prank that someone pulled on them i.e dolly um or was this you know this is the australian outback who knows what creatures you're going to find out in the wilderness of course and so I, I love that scene and then building up to the next morning when Hannah finds the snake um, drowned in a jar downstairs. Scott, you know, I could not remember if snakes could breathe water. And I could not remember if they were amphibious. So I was like, is that snake still alive in there? <laughs> um, I was asking myself that question, but I, I guess dead. Well, there seemed um, to be quite a lot of blood, too, I think. so. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, that's true. That's I think that was pretty much settled that. Because I do think snakes are amphibious. Or they can. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. They can breathe underwater. You just have to kill it before you put it in the jar, I guess. Anyway, uh, that's enough talk about saying we don't need to keep talking about that. That was my favorite scene or moment from uh, from the Royal Hotel out of 10, though. We'll talk about scores now, Scott. What are you giving the Royal Hotel? I give it an 8.6. I thought it was really successful for what it was trying to do. One of the best movies in this thematic subgenre, if you will. Um, thus far and yeah i think firmly cements kitty green as somebody who i'm going to be excited for every one of her movies now from here on out yeah 7.5 for me i did really enjoy this film you know scott i was looking back at my review of the assistant and i saw that i gave it three stars um interesting because i don't remember that experience being a three-star experience um but you know ratings in the moment do funny things but sure. I'm not sure this is quite as good as, as the assistant for me in retrospect. So take with that what you will. Uh, 7.5. I thought it was good. I'm very interested for Kitty Green to tell her third, her make her third narrative feature. I did call this her sophomore outing earlier. I guess I should acknowledge that she has made several documentary features. Mm-hmm. So this was her second narrative feature. Um, but I'm excited to see where she goes from here. Not that there could not continue to be more things to mine out of this subgenre of film, but I would like her to see, would like to see her spread her wings. And yes, not that these too. themes still can't be present in the film she makes, but I want her to make something a little bit more expansive in her next in her next film. Again, if not, I trust her, and I'll be interested, and I'll be there to, to see it. But I think it'd be cool if we sort of saw her branch out a little bit and either again tell a more expansive story with these themes still apart, or do something completely different, like a Marvel movie. I'm kidding. Uh, no reaction from Scott. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. No, okay, not a fan of that. All right, got it. So that should do it for our discussion of the Royal Hotel. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about a Martin Luther King Jr. biopic that was announced this past week, as well as another update from me on the New York Film Festival. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, there's a Martin Luther King Jr. biopic now on the horizon officially. Scott, why don't you tell us more about the talent attached to this film so far? Yeah, um, certainly not the person that you would expect to sure. be behind this movie in terms of you know, direct, both directing and producing. Uh, Chris Rock. Uh, Chris Rock is uh, the person who is responsible for this new Martin Luther King Jr. biopic based on a biography called King A Life by Jonathan Eag. Yeah, the, the book was a bestseller, um, you know, apparently a, a big biography um, of Martin Luther King Jr. I, I was just looking. I don't believe that any cast has been named for the movie no, yet. But uh, also in the production department, Steven Spielberg um, is going to be assisting in some regard uh, on getting this movie out there. Um, I believe this is Chris Rock's directorial debut. Quote, don't quote me on that, but... Um, you said no. Uh, he, I forgot. Yeah, he he's directed a couple movies. He directed that movie, Top Five, but that's been almost ten years ago now. But uh, he's mainly made sort of broad comedies up until now, and obviously is a comedian. So, um, you would yeah, I think he's that. made like three movies. I'm just quickly looking here. It looks like he's yeah, directed. No, I, I just yeah, they're all comedies. Yeah, yeah, Head of State. I think I love my wife and Top Five. Yeah, um, and. So this is obviously going to be a direction change for him. Um, you know, obviously it must be some sort of passion project for him. If he's, you know, directing and producing, he's really taking um, the initiative and in getting this movie out there. Um, I'm willing to keep an open mind about it. I, I guess, you know, we had Selma a few years ago, which was, uh, you know, a pretty good um film that depicted a particular event i was just trying to think of movies about martin luther king jr and well, you know martin luther king jr i believe role. is going to be in like the obviously the person character is going to be in rustin i believe because that film yes. was about the march on washington uh -huh. i don't know if who's playing him in that movie though yeah i don't know either i only know about coleman domingo obviously in that movie but um, but yeah it, it actually you know weirdly enough it feels like maybe there is a little bit of a dearth of movies out there um, you know, maybe maybe there are movies where Martin Luther King Jr. is a character, but in terms of biographies of him, movies about him, um, there's certainly not a definitive one that I'm aware of. Um, and, you know, frankly, I would be surprised if Chris Rock's version turns out to be a definitive version. But uh, sure. I'm willing to to keep an open mind about it, especially if Steven Spielberg's attached himself. He probably, um, you know. I mean, just as a producer, right? Like, it's not like he's going to be sure, heavily involved sure. in the film. But his name is still going to be on it, and that's worth something to sure. to him, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Again, something that I will probably, my interest will go up or down, depending on who the cast is, whenever that gets revealed. Yeah, I think it's under the Amblin banner, which is why Spielberg is producing. So, yeah, it, interesting. It's an interesting choice. Scott, I got to ask, is, will Will Smith be in this movie? I'm going to go with a no at this point no, in time, but man, that would be something. I mean, not exactly a, a dead ringer for Martin Luther King Jr., but it would be no. funny if get him a cameo in there. Maybe he slaps someone. Think he'd do it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know where that would factor into Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. But No, it's I like mean, a cameo. It would just be a cameo. He may have slapped somebody. As in the background. Yeah. No, Will Smith in just in the background. He's not playing Martin Luther King Jr. He's just in the background of a scene. He slaps someone. Maybe even Chris Rock. Maybe Chris Rock puts him in, puts himself in there. 
Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Chris Rock slaps Will Smith in the movie. The We're possibilities thinking. are endless, Scott. The I don't know if they're endless. endless. I'm not, I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Scott. Yes, that is an interesting development. I tend to agree that the movie-director combo does not necessarily inspire great dramatic confidence. But beautiful thing is we can reserve judgment on that until we see the film. So That is a beautiful thing. More on this as the story develops, I suppose. Going over to the other topic for today, gave a, a pretty hearty recap of my first weekend of the New York Film Festival last week. Since then, I have seen eight more films, so my total is right now at 14. I saw Hitman, the new Richard Linklater movie, last Tuesday. Scott, what a what a pleasure of a film to see. Comedies are back. Glenn Powell is back. Um, you know, not not one of the great Linklater movies, probably but certainly great enough to warrant a good time and a rewatch. Like it, it is pop on material. Scott, I I'm, I'm putting the stamp on it. It will be pop on material. And the fact that it's on Netflix means that it will be all the easier maybe to, for people to pop on and enjoy right. the background. There's a great uh, montage that you're a huge fan of a good montage sequence, Scott. Oh yeah. Um, there's a, there's a good montage sequence in this in this film you can use your imagination what the montage might be if you know anything about the movie but uh you might not so if not then i'll just leave it uh for you to enjoy when you see this film later this year i, I honestly i don't think i need to say anything more about this movie it's it's probably right now i mean i still have six movies left at the festival i believe if i got my numbers right but right now it is one of my favorite films one of, one of the most enjoyable films i've watched at the festival so i don't know where it's going to shake out in terms of like a top three top five etc but I'd be surprised if it doesn't make the cut, at least in the top five movies I saw at the festival at this point. Evil does not exist. Ryusuke Hamaguchi, the director of Drive My Car and Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy most recently in 2021, saw his new film. Uh, one of the most fascinating films at the festival, not just because of what is presented on screen, Scott, but the Q&A. And I think I've mentioned this about Hamaguchi before, but he's just one of the most fascinating and interesting people to listen to talk about his his films like for people who enjoyed drive my car or you know that's his most famous film i'm not going to say if you didn't watch that movie and you did watch for some reason wheel of fortune and fantasy would be very strange if you've only seen one and not the other in my mind but if you've ever enjoyed a hamaguchi film look up an interview on youtube or something like that where he talks about his movies and, and does a q a because he is just one of the more insightful people to listen to him talk about his process and and what he went through and and what his movies mean to him. I think he's just such a treat to listen to and and in the Q&A for the e for Evil does not exist. He talked about and this is going to blow your mind Scott. He was asked to make this film by uh the person who scored Drive My Car. Her name is um Aiko I'm I'm forgetting her last name off the top of my head. It is uh Aiko Ishibashi. So she's the person who did the, the did the score for Drive My Car. She also does the score for Evil Does Not Exist, and, and that will become clear in just a moment. But she asked him to develop a visual, uh, basically like a visual play along for her next piece of music that she was composing. Like she was making a new piece of music and asked him to make a film to be played along with it. And so that's how the film sort of originated and started. It then developed into something where, okay, no, I'm going to make this into a full-fledged film your score will be a huge part of the movie, yeah. but 
it, it it didn't totally end up like something that you'd go to an Ishibashi concert and like watch this film played to her music. It didn't totally end up like that. But that's the origin of the film. And one of the most immediately noticeable things about this movie is that the score is so much more prominent than Drive My Car, than Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. There obviously are very important moments in the film, but those moments are often separate from the music. I mean, one of the big things that he talks about in this Q&A is that he feels very strongly that composition music should not be used to... Um, one of the things that we talk about exacerbate the emotions that you're like, try to force you into feeling emotions that you should be feeling from the film. He very much feels like it should be a compliment to enhance, but not necessarily to like, force someone to feel a certain way. Things that we've talked about several times, even recently on the podcast, Scott, but he talked a lot about that and how it was important. So there's these very interesting cutoffs in the film where, I mean, the opening 10, 15 minutes of this movie doesn't have any dialogue. It's just this, the music, the composition playing, with mostly nature shots, frankly. And then the film develops and there is, there is, you know, the film does develop from there and evolves and you, there are characters, there's a story, um, yeah. a, a pretty interesting plot, a lot to talk about. I really just simply don't want to talk about what actually happens in this movie, but simply put, it is about this sort of like ex urban or rural town outside of Tokyo, where essentially some businessmen are trying to develop a resort like like um you know almost like installation uh a glamping installation uh literally like a, a glamour camping installation at, in this rural town and you know the conflict is that that's not necessarily in the town's best interest and the main characters are these sort of two agency executives and a couple members of the town who are trying to stand up for the rights of, of of the town members and things like that. So that's sort of the setup for the film. Don't want to talk any more about that. But like with all Hamaguchi films that I've seen, which granted are not all of them, they just sort of leave you with a lot to think about. Um, and I'd say maybe even more so in this film, uh, leaves you with a lot to think about the title of the movie as well. Like it, it, there really is an interesting dynamic going on there. So did really, really enjoy that film as well. One of those movies that I feel like I'm just gonna have to sit with for a while to like fully understand how I feel and where this shakes out in like a, you know, in my movies of the year list. And I'm not even necessarily saying that it'll be near the top. It's just like there's just so much to sort of digest after the movie finishes. So I saw those two movies during the week last week and then had an action, you know, filled weekend. Saturday, we already talked about it earlier in this pod on the, in the podcast very briefly, but I saw The Taste of Things, which is the Chanan Hong movie that's a french film which is the submission for best international feature at the oscars not anatomy of a fall and beautiful i mean just gorgeous film absolutely beautiful film the first 30 40 minutes of this two hour 15 minute movie are just people making food juliette binoche cooking up a meal uh, a, a glorious meal i might add i mean this meal is is huge um, it is a true feast, like multi-course endeavor that, um, you know, she, who is this almost, uh, I don't know the right way to cook, but she's essentially this, she is the cook for this manner, for the other sort of protagonist, Benoit Majamel's Dodin. He's like this arist like French aristocrat in the late, aristocrat, wow, the Disney film aristocrat, aristocrat in the late 19th century. And 
she is sort of the manners chef, the cook. Um, they work together in the kitchen. He is also the sort of great gourmet chef who thinks up these recipes and menus and and she sort of helps him realize those things in the kitchen. And the first, like I said, sort of the first almost act of the film is them preparing this massive meal for Dodin and his and his, you know, party, the the men that he dines with and has over to his estate. And unsurprisingly, yes, there this is a sort of like a aristocrat chef romance that evolves between the two of their characters that is there at the beginning and it travels through the whole film the thread carries through so it's a room it's a deeply romantic film it's a film that draws obvious sort of connections to the sensuality of food and the preparation of food and everything and you know it's just a film that i really really enjoyed one of my favorite films of the festival here as well and there's a i will say this about the end of the film not to reveal any spoilers but there was a moment where i was worried that the film was going to end in a place that I didn't feel wholly satisfying, but you know, Tran on Hong does steer the film directly on course where it ends in a, in a way that was really satisfying to me. I think the sort of final line of the film leaves me with a lot to think about. I, I still think I'm deciding exactly what emotions that makes me feel. And I'm not going to say it requires a full rewatch for me to just digest the final line of the movie, but it's the kind of film where I wouldn't call it pop on material, Scott. I wouldn't go that far. I think yeah. romance movies are hard to be pop on materials in that sense because there's also just a lot of emotional weight that comes along with that. Romantic but it, dramas, certainly. Yeah. Sure. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like true romance films. Yeah. Um, but this film, you know, it is a film that I do want to watch again. Maybe not immediately, but certainly sometime before the end of the year to fully digest. Uh, sorry, I didn't, that pun was not intended, but to fully sort of wrap my wrap my hands around that overall. You know, saw another big hitter on Saturday, Anatomy of a Fall, which is a, a film that we'll probably talk about on the podcast at some point. I think you said you're getting it at the end of this month in near you in Charlotte. Obviously, the Palm Door yes. winner. So it's going it, it obviously has a lot of buzz coming in around it. As I just mentioned a, a moment ago, not the French selection uh, or submission, I should say, for the international feature Oscar, which I was surprised to then be reminded of at the festival that it was not the submission. I do wonder if it will be considered, especially in the act, like in the in the best actress category for Sandra Huller, who is the lead in this film, because she's giving a very layered performance in this and probably one of the one of the best performances I've I've seen at the festival. Was but it the, better than her performance in the zone of interest? Well, I'm about to talk about then just about, yeah. about to that very thing in just a moment because she obviously had a very Sandra Huller filled weekend at the film festival because she is also the second lead. I would say should probably get campaigned for and supporting actress in that role, but she really is the second lead of, the, of that of the zone of interest. She plays the wife of a Nazi commandant at Auschwitz. But Anatomy of a Fall, she's playing the um, sort of the widow of a man who under mysterious circumstances falls out of a third or fourth. I don't exactly know what floor he fell off of uh, when I think back, but third or fourth floor of, of their home uh, to his death down on the ground. And and the film sort of doubles as a, as a mystery courtroom drama, but also just a reflection on truth and reality and justice and all <laughs> these sorts of things that um, it's easy to, 
to sort of front with a courtroom drama, right? It's it's very easy to leave things ambiguous and and have you dissect certain elements of character and plot. And that is exactly what this film does. It does it really well. The courtroom drama of it all, Scott, you know, this is a different judicial system. Uh, I don't think that you'll be in love with the judicial practices of France uh, in, in this film. There's certainly a it's lot France. of... Yeah, I don't have France. high expectations. Yeah, it, it's hard for me to say whether any of any of the things that happen in the courtrooms uh, in this film are accurate or not, because I'm not familiar with the French legal system. If they are, wow. Um, but second, uh, it, it still was a really good compelling watch i don't know if it fully goes over the top to like palm door oh my god you have to go see this movie status but that you know th- that's sometimes the case with with the palm door and 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 french uh Certainly critics and judges of of these types of movies sometimes they're hits sometimes they're movies you have to go see and, and sometimes they're not and that's okay but anatomy of a fall i look forward to talking about it more in the future there's a particular performance for the, the her child in the film her name is the character's name is daniel I don't remember the actor's name off the top of my head right now, but he gives, um, you know, he he's a very important character in the climax of the film. And there are some very disturbing things that happen towards the end of this movie w- with relation to his character. But he also, uh, there's also some parts of the film that sort of really drive the emotional themes of the film. And, and the sort of, like I said, the sort of the reflection and the exploration of character really revolves around, around him in a lot of ways. And so the two of them really combine for uh, to make the movie work work for me. So uh, a big thumbs up for me. La Camera. Th- honestly, just like don't have that many thoughts about this film. It's an Italian film that um, Josh O'Connor is the is the lead in. Obviously, most famous for his role as Prince Charles in The Crown. It's directed and written by Alice Rohrocker, uh, and I just don't have a ton of thoughts about this movie because it kind of fell flat for me. Some parts of it, it, it's also just too long, frankly. And maybe this is just an, uh, which would be true of other uh, Alice Rocker films. I have not seen Happy as Lazaro or The Wonders. Which is or... a very acclaimed film. Happy as Lazaro is, is a, you know, was yeah. a big film for her when it came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it is about um, Josh O'Connor's character, Arthur, who he gets out of prison Um and he sort of goes back to the sort of life of almost like second tier crime robbing graves, right? Like he is this sort of not mystic type character, but he has this sort of divine sense where he's able to sense like, I guess like dead bodies or like tombs around him. And, and he and several of these sort of Italian, I don't know, um, comrades of his like fellow uh, i don't want to say they're in the they're in a gang but that is probably maybe the easiest way to describe it sort of make their living hawking goods to like a local fence that they steal from sort of renaissance or even earlier like almost like all going all the way back to like etruscan times like pre-roman times tombs in in these sort of in the italian countryside where they reside some parts of it work some parts of it don't it's just a film that didn't really deeply resonate with me overall. Again, I don't think it, it's not a bad movie. It's just not one that really fully worked and landed for me overall. Interesting if you get the chance to see it, but I'm I, it's not a must watch from me. Going into my Sunday, Scott, we talked about it just a second ago. The Zone of Interest, obviously another really hot film coming out of Canada, won the Grand Prix Award, which I believe is the 
is that like the jury? That's the jury. What's the, so. with the jury prize? I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't remember. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. But I it, think the it, jury won... prize is the jury prize. Okay, got it. Yeah, is uh, well, regardless, it, it was a awarded film out of Cannes. Had a lot of buzz around it for the material, and you know, we haven't really talked about it or brought it up or alluded to it at all in the podcast. But was an even more poignant film to watch given the context of the events that happened this past weekend in Israel with uh, Hamas attacking Israel and, and then now the subsequent war that has broken out there. And yeah, I mean, it is a remarkable film. Scott, this is a dynamic that you talk about a lot, I think, or not, a lot, I shouldn't say a lot, but it has come up occasionally when we're talking about really outstandingly made films that just sort of leave you cold on the inside and I think this is one of those movies. It's this is obviously a ludicrous comparison to make because also the films are doing different things. But like it, this film is not like Schindler's List. Like when you get to the end of this movie, you're not going to feel this big like emotional resonance at the end of the film. And that's not what the film is trying to do. Like the film is not trying to give you this. It's not a Spielberg film either. <laughs> that, sure. That's the sure. thing about Schindler is that's all Spielberg. I know, but I just I think like it's impossible that. not to think about Schindler's List. When yeah, you're watching this yeah. Movie I mean, it is the definitive reason. Holocaust movie. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it, this film, it's important to say, is trying to do something different with its material. And it, it, it does take the perspective of the commander of or commandant. I forget the actual like terminology and titles, and it's probably good that I don't actually know the answer to that. But he I think he is the commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp. His name is Rudolf Haas who's played by Christian Fidel Fidel. He's the lead in the film and his wife played by Sandra Huller named Hedwig is a, an important character in the film as well. But notably, I really feel like this and it was, it was sort of alluded to and described this way in the Q and a afterward that Jonathan Glazer gave, but like it's really two films layered on top of each other, maybe not in the way you instantly think about when I say that, but there is a visual film and then there is an aural film. There is like what you see on the screen and what you hear coming from the screen. And they are two different stories happening. And I think that like this is where the sausage gets made for this movie. Like this is where it lives and dies because what you see on the screen is a normal, idyllic, like suburban looking home, right? With a family who whose parent, you know, whose dad works very hard, whose mom tends around the house and sort of master is the master of the house with a lot of kids running around who seem happy with their life. There are maids and nannies and servants, however you want to frame it, that are sort of serving the children and the mother's, you know, whims and needs. But and 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 that is important because it it goes to painstaking to make it painstakingly clear that the foreground of the film is very much just the quote unquote normal everyday life that you could mistake for being in any sort of like suburban reality. The background of the film and the auditory experience of the film is one of pure horror. In the background, you 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 see the smokestack very visibly almost throughout the entire film where they where Jews are being incinerated at the camp. You hear the sound of the incinerator roar roar to life in the evening. You hear gunshots. You hear screams. The auditory experience of the film is completely different than if you 
watch this film without sound. And it is one of the more remarkable experiences in that respect. And it is the union of those two stories that create the real emotional impact of the movie that, that these people, these, again, if you're just looking at what's on the screen, these normal looking people living their lives can just live in the context of these absolute atrocities that are happening literally 50 feet away from their house. Like literally their backyard is the, like runs up to the wall of the concentration camp. And it's just like one of the more sort of harrowing film experiences to, to both listen and watch what happens in the movie. You know, like I said, I think all those things put together create an interesting story. There's also some really, there's a couple weird elements of this film that I don't necessarily feel like I need to get into because Again, I don't really think about them as spoilers, but there's like some weird time element of this film as well that I haven't quite pieced together. I kind of get the point of, but also don't really understand. But, you know, ultimately I was left again, not necessarily in a bad way, but was left quite cold by the film overall. Um, But it is a remarkable feat Um, and the kind of movie that sort of pairs its different components of the film in a way that. I don't want to say is unique, but is not something that I think I, at least I have experienced a lot of this notion of like sort of creating two different experiences in the two inputs to the final film that you see. I think that's an interesting way to compose your film, but it certainly left me afterwards thinking, I don't know if I loved that. <laughs> you know, I don't think I loved that experience watching that movie. And, and you know, it, it came to mind you talking, I think there's a couple films over the past year, two years, three years where you've, you sort of talked about uh, a similar experience to that. And, you know, it made me, it did remind me a bit of that. Janet Planet, Scott, sort of the lighthearted film of, of my weekend. Uh, Julianne Nicholson and Zoe Ziegler, sort of newcomer Zoe Ziegler in Annie Baker's directorial debut on the, on the big screen, obviously quite famous for her um, plays. Her, I don't know if she's directed plays, but certainly she's written them. Um, probably both. I'm sure she's written and directed at this point. But she is directed the film. It's a coming of age ish story. Um, kind of a big year, I guess, for coming of age films. With Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Janet Planet feels of a similar vibe in that it is, you know, a eleven eleven ish year old girl going into middle school who is experiencing a lot of angst and she's not in the new environment, but clearly has a very, you know, different personality and, and sort of experiences not ice. I mean, not yes. Isolation is a, is a way to describe it, but she's not the only part of the story. Her mom played by Julianne Nicholson um, is just as much a part of this film as, as Julie, uh, sorry, Zoe Ziegler is and the film is actually kind of framed in a way of her mom going through different relationships. Her mom has like three central, like not I shouldn't say central, three relationships that she is sort of in and out of, both romantic and otherwise, in the film. That the film sort of frames its narrative around, and it's told from from the daughter's perspective. Her name's Lacey, but uh, an enjoyable film. Again, not one that I think I ultimately am going to find super memorable, but. It is effective at evoking this like really strong sense memory of nostalgia for summers of you know middle school years and um, 
although I wasn't a middle schooler when I was there, but summers in Western Massachusetts where this film is set as well. So there's a sort of like weird nostalgic overlap of, of summers that I spent in college and also just like the summertime when you are young that this film sort of taps into and, and works well, an enjoyable movie, but again, not one of my favorites of the festival. You might, you might enjoy it more than me to be Frank Scott. I don't know if you plan to, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward this. to it a lot. Yeah. I love Annie Baker's play, the flick. It's like one of my favorite plays ever. So yeah, an enjoyable film. And, and it would not surprise me at all. If you, if you were even hot, hotter on it than mm. I am, but uh, it was a nice sort of tonic in the middle of a pretty heavy weekend of films um, and closing it out with the beast. I, like I kind of talked about the beast already. I don't know how much more I need to say about this. If you're curious on my thoughts on the beast, rewind to the beginning of the episode and listen to what I said there. But that is Leia Seydoux and uh, George, George Mackay playing a bit of like a time hopping sci-fi romance film. Um, interesting concept. Not sure if it's fully executed and when it sort of goes for its like big emotional ending, I think I was maybe just a little tired at that point. And not just from having seen two other films earlier in the day, but just tired from the film. There are some moments that I think that are really effective in the movie, but but some less so um, in, in that department. It is uh, it is the latest one from Bertrand Boniello. And the part was originally written for Gaspard Ulelli, who is the. Um, French actor who died in a skiing after a skiing accident where he received a massive brain injury. And so the film is dedicated to him. The part was written for him. And in the Q&A afterwards, uh, Bertrand Bonella said that he really it was really important to him to cast someone who was not French in the movie to play the sort of secondly, the the lead, the character that um, is ultimately played by George Mackay. And one of the most like poor emotional Q&A moments was him just talking about how he really thought the project wasn't ever going to be able to be made. Uh, but when he met with George Mackay for the first time, he finally felt that, the you know, he could still he could still make the film. And so that was like a very emotional moment in the Q&A. But obviously, that doesn't really have mu too much to do with the film. I think, again, if it really interests you, it could be your bag. If that sort of like time hopping you know characters playing multiple different roles across time like cloud atlas is interesting to you maybe check it out um but not a highly recommended film from me that's my new york film festival so far i have six films left including ferrari and the killer two Jeez. of the biggest ones in the festival but also some smaller films that i'm excited about as well tomorrow night i'm supposed to see the sweet east which is the new Talia Ryder film, um, along with quite a, a heavy hitting cast list uh, of similarly aged actors and actresses. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, Perfect Days, the Wim Wenders movie. Scott's still to come. Very worried I will not be seeing that, actually. I don't think I'm, I'm really mm. not confident that I'll be making it to that movie, which is unfortunate. But I'm seeing that movie's at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, and it seems extremely unlikely that I will be able to attend that movie. But we shall see. And then I'm seeing the, the first three episodes of The Curse, the Benny Safdie, Nathan Fielder, Emma Stone film um, oh, yeah. on Thursday night. I also bought a quote unquote season pass to see the remaining seven episodes of that show in theaters at Lincoln Center. Okay. So I bought like the nice. full season pass. Never watched a TV show in, in a movie theater, a full TV show in a movie theater before. But I'm finally going to get the OJ Made in America or whatever yeah. documentary experience. <laughs> um so that's my New York Film Festival so far. I think that should do it 
let's get out of here, Scott. That's it for episode 251. Where can people find you on socials? I'm at Scarby Den on all platforms. And you can find me at, at Shelton2013 on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Serialized. Don't forget to also check out our podcast Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. If not, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. We really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about the Royal Hotel. We are off next week. Don't worry. We still have the Miyazaki countdown happening every single week. We're building up to the boy and the heron, uh, which will be out, I believe, wide release in early December, which we will be talking about it then. But we will be back not next week, but the week after with another Some Like It Scott episode. And it's a big one. Martin Scorsese's new film starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Killers of the Flower Moon. We hope you'll join us for that. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. See you down the road.